You are listening to the JTMR podcast. Visit our website at www.jesustomyrescue.com for free sermons, articles, e-books, Bible study tools, Bible quizzes, and lots more. We share the gospel of Jesus to the world. Thank you, listeners. Welcome back to JTMR Radio. And of course, today we are talking to Arion, and we are absolutely blessed to have him with us today. Welcome. Thank you so much, Yaku. I just first of all want to say right from the very beginning, thank you for um, granting me the time to be able to share my story um, on your radio station. And I just want to congratulate you, congratulate you as a South African uh, for the work that you're doing that's um, got a global reach that is uniting Christians across our planet. So um, congratulations on that and blessings to you. Thank you very much. All to the glory of God. Amen. So it's really an honor to have you with us today. I want you to, to just start by telling our listeners who you are, where you're from, what do you do for a living? Perfect. Um, so I'm Aaron Bezadenot. I grew up in KwaZulu-Natal in Durban at the coast. Um, I have four siblings. I... Um, work as a hairstylist and um, recently just became an ordained pastor, although I don't work um, in full-time ministry yet, um, have a Bachelor of Theology degree from Nation to Nation Christian University in the USA, I'm hoping to be able to make some money to be able to study my master's, um, and I live in Johannesburg. I've been a Christian for 19 years. And I'm just an ordinary guy who loves Jesus, who's trying his best to do Christianity the right way. Fantastic. I want to specifically touch on today because we, you mentioned that you wrote a book. Um, yes. and, and to give you the opportunity to just share with our listeners the name of the book and just in short what the book is about. Okay. Thank you for that, Yaku. I'm so um, my book is an autobiography about my life. It's the story of a broken man, a sinner, and the struggle, almost like Jacob struggled with God, um, the struggle of a sinner trying to make sense of why does he feel the way he feels, why does he keep sinning, trying to understand the Bible, trying to fit into the world, making sense of historical trauma. Um, and so my the title of my book is called Bedroom Called Rainbow, and I called it that because our bedroom is often the place where many of us perform some of our most dysfunctional behaviors, but it's also often the place that is our sanctuary, our prayer, where we cry out to God when we're alone and don't know working the way that it is. And then rainbow, because I'm a South African, one of the catchphrases of being South African is, is, is that we live in a rainbow nation. And my story tells the story of a South African guy. And rainbow also because it's the promise from God at the end of the flood that he wouldn't flood the entire earth again. But it's also significant because I come from a history of the LGBTQ community, which has a rainbow flag. And so my story and touches many different aspects from uh, parental attempted murder. My dad tried to murder me twice. He was a, 
a violent alcoholic, a very broken man who never got the healing he should have gotten. Um, um, childhood sexual abuse from the age of four to 13, raped at the age of 12, um, bullied at school, you know, grew up in apartheid South Africa. So if you were uh, a creative boy, you were labeled certain things and you were ostracized because you weren't one of the alpha males, which led me to um, explore the LGBT community, thinking that um, I would find a place to fit in and belong and that the LGBT community introduced me to drugs and I um, became a full-blown drug addict, um, ended up in rehab at the age of 30 for the first time. I was in rehab five times and there I became a reborn Christian. And so my book takes us on this journey of all of this and how God has brought me to a place of being clean and sober for six years, um, celibate for five years, um, and doing my very best to live my life exclusively for Jesus, um, who just it happens to be the love of my life. He's my He's my Lord. He's my Savior, um, and absolutely just blows my mind how God never gives up on us, no matter how many times we fall, no matter how much we struggle. Is God is for us all of the time, and so that's the gist of my book. Wow. Well, first of all, I love the name of the book. I think now that you that you explained also why you called it this, I think it's incredible. And um, sure, I, I must tell you, I'm definitely, just by this little bit of information that you gave and by the name of the book, I'm definitely going to go and buy that book and read it. It sounds absolutely incredible. Um, Irina, I want to just, you know, there's a few things that I want to talk about um, today. Um, you touched on on quite a bit um, um, you know, important points there. Um, yes. You certainly had an interesting and a very challenging life. Yes. Um, tell me a little bit about, you, you mentioned that, that you know, attempted murder. Uh, did yes. I hear right that you said it was on your life? Yes. Sure, that is terrible. Yes. So, um, so to, without, you know, what the Bible's very, clear about not dishonoring our parents um so i'm going to try and explain my dad's brokenness in the most honorable way that i can without pretending that the violence didn't happen so my dad grew up in um in south africa and my grandfather who i never met he was also a broken man who would do things like get his sons to beat each other up in the backyard to toughen them up to be men. And so my father didn't came from a history where he didn't know how to be a father. He didn't know what um, masculine love taught how to love his children. And because of his brokenness, he was a very severe alcoholic. Um, in and out of jobs for violence, very broken. And so I think when my dad, when I was born, I'm hoping that he was going to have this big, strong, tough kind of alpha male guy and ended up with a creative son. I don't think he knew how to cope with it. He didn't have the tools. Um, and so in drunken fits, um, would often uh, strangle me until I passed out because I couldn't breathe. And then twice he literally tried to murder me, uh, smashing my face into the toilet. I was about three, four years old, thereabouts. Um, and then the second time, 
um, held me from by the leg outside the window from a third story flat and threatened to to drop it drop me unless my mother bought him alcohol and so that resulted obviously um, in me feeling like I'm not man enough I'm not good enough I'm something's wrong with me um, and I'm unloved which then translated into a whole lot of dysfunctional behaviors later in life because I also didn't get the therapy I should have gotten as a child. Um, but fortunately, you know, we serve an amazing God that when we do raise our flag of surrender, it's amazing the journey that he takes us on to be able to heal and, and learn to become better. Sure. I, I, I have no words. That is, I cannot even comprehend what it must have been like for you to grow up yeah. I mean, also, I mean, the fear that you that you must have had in you your entire life as a as a young boy. I mean, that's that is so hard. Absolutely. I mean, to 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 try and paint the picture of the severity of my dad's violence. My dad would do crazy things like um, he would lock my sister and I. My two other siblings came much later, but he would lock my uh, my sister and I in the bedroom, and he would force us to watch um, us watch him cut my mother's legs open with a bread knife and if any of us cried he would beat us up so that sense of terror growing up you spend most of your life trying to be invisible and people pleasing to avoid further harm and that is such a destructive thing because even in my adult life I found that I was allowing the wrong kinds of people to, or not wrong kinds of people, but other broken people to direct my life um, mm. because I was so afraid that if I didn't do what they wanted me to do, violence would ensue, which it often did, or I wouldn't be liked, I wasn't good enough, I wasn't beautiful enough, intelligent enough, all the narratives that come out of that life of absolute terror. Sure. Erin, let's let's you mentioned um something about about rape. Can you maybe tell us about that? Yes. So although although I was sexually abused from the age of four to thirteen, um, and what's interesting about my sexual abuse story is um I was sexually abused by men and women and across um ethnic uh, groups. Um Although it's all rape because it's non-consensual, um, in my book, I refer to the rape at the age of 12 because it was the most violent. Um, and so I was I, I was living on the bluff. I was 12 years old. And where we lived, my mom worked for Transnet. So we lived in a railway house. And across the way, there was a caravan park and there was this forest that I used to love to go and play in. I was a bit of a dreamer. I think it was my coping mechanism to not deal with the reality of the home I grew up in. And the one day I was running and playing in the forest like a normal child. And this um, person of a different ethnicity, for the sake of not causing racial conflict, I'm not going to mention the, the name on radio. It's in my book. Um, um, but this person of a different ethnicity noticed that um, I was struggling to get these ants off of my back and started to rub these ants off and the 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 helping hand very quickly turned into a scary hand that I knew something was about to happen and so 
um, tried to dismiss myself from the situation, started running back through the pathway. And uh, this man obviously followed me and suddenly grabbed me and pushed me into the felt between this long grass and forced anal sex. And uh, yeah, and I just remember as a child just crying and, you know, asking God to kill me so that I could go home and for it to be over quickly and uh, rushing home and cleaning myself and then um, having to lie about the experience to my mother who knew something was wrong because I was walking strange and just lying and saying that my father had beat me up because I knew that if I had told my mom, she would tell my dad. And my dad was the kind of guy who would have blamed me and said I did something to elicit that kind of experience. So to avoid further violence, I just pretended that my dad had beaten me up because I knew she wouldn't confront him on that because that would just stir him to anger again. Sure. Yeah. It must have been difficult for your mum as well. I mean, you mentioned now that, that she would not go to your dad to talk about it, you know, when he would have assaulted you or, or something. But, I mean, surely, I mean, what was their relationship like? Well, for my mom, she was terrified. She eventually did divorce him at the age of 13. Um, and during most of my sort of um, childhood and early teenage years, I couldn't quite understand why my mom never left him. Um, but eventually it did make sense when I kind of um, overheard my dad multiple times threatening that if she ever left with the kids, um, he would kill her and the kids. So my mom, my mom wanted to become a nun. And so she was deeply, deeply religious. But unfortunately, because she grew up under that old religiosity of, you know, stand by your man, you know, divorce is a sin and all of those things. And we know that divorce is sin, but, um, you know, the church didn't kind of drive home that it's not okay to be in a marriage where you are physically, verbally, psychologically, emotionally being traumatized. Um, so she stayed um, and she stayed because she it was the only way she knew how to protect her children. Um, she did eventually divorce him at the age of 13 and did try and run away with uh, my sister and I um, and my other little sister who was born at that time. Um, but my dad would find us and he would beat her up and force her back. And so it must have been very difficult for her as a woman to be defenseless against this very big muscular kind of man and do trying to do her motherly duty of protecting her children but not knowing what to do because for fear of her children being murdered. So it was tough. Yes. I want to quickly just, you know, did you, during all of this that happened yes. um, as a young boy, were yes. there every time where you cried out to the church for help? Yes, we did. My mom did. Um, and the church did organize the child welfare to come and remove us kids um, multiple times. Um, but my dad would beat up the welfare people. And my dad was a bit of a gangster to the point where the police all knew him by name. And it was embarrassing growing up because we would go to the shopping mall, for example, and the police would walk past and there would be like, hey, Johnny, Johnny, that was his nickname. And so everybody knew him to the point where even some of the police were scared of him because my dad was an incredibly strong, 
violent kind of guy. Um, and so the the church felt, you know, back in those days, um, the police and churches and that they didn't really want to get involved in domestic violence situations unless a case was open. And so if my mom did open a case, which she did a few times, my dad would be arrested for a couple of weeks and then he would get out and it will all start over again. Um, so I think it was difficult, you know, because the, the church didn't really know what to do with this person who would just beat everybody up who tried to intervene. Yeah. Tommy, um, just quickly, you know, you also mentioned that you you ended up in, in you know, using drugs. I'm just I'm just always very curious, asking everybody when I do interviews like this, what kind of drugs were you on? Okay, so um, I was um, on mostly what is known as amphetamines, um, crystal meth um, and cat. Um, because I'm a dancer or I'm a natural born dancer, I should have gone and studied dance, but you know, boys don't dance. Um, so I always wanted things that gave me energy that I could dance for days and days and days and days. Because I hadn't healed when I got into drug abuse, dancing became the way for me to get attention because I danced fairly well. Um, and so dancing became the hook for me to make friends and make attention. So when I discovered drugs, I could suddenly dance for days upon days upon days upon days and get what I thought was attention. I mean, later on in rehab and that I realized that it was all fake. Um, but my progression started like most people, I suppose, where um, you experiment with a little bit of alcohol. I was always very anti-alcohol because my dad was an alcoholic. But you experiment with alcoholic alcohol because of peer pressure. Then it went to marijuana. Then it went to ecstasy and then to LSD, cocaine, and then eventually ended up at the at the amphetamines. I tried. My saving grace was is that I'm I'm afraid of needles, so um, heroin never became an option for me because I will never inject anything into my body. I would never. Um, I did try heroin twice, but I hated it so much because it made me so violently ill. And so I'm very lucky that God's grace was there because I'd hate to know where my life would have gone if um, I had gone onto heroin, because heroin, unlike the amphetamines, becomes physically addictive to your body, where many of the other drugs are psychologically addictive. Mm, mm. Um, you mentioned in the beginning about the the part of the, the LGBTQ community and, and how it also like formed part of the name of the book of the, the rainbow part of it. And it's a very it's a very touchy subject because I think a lot of people, and I think especially the church today, they're too afraid to talk about this. But we cannot bring healing and we cannot move forward if we don't talk about it. So I think what I want to do is really just tell us a little bit about your involvement there and, and you know, what did you do there and how did it affect your life? Okay, so uh, for me, the big thing was, that um, I am um, so out of desperation from um, a multiple set of events, you know, being emasculated by my father, bullied at school, growing up in apartheid South Africa where you had to fit a particular version of masculinity, being labeled, all of these kind of things. Um, getting into the LGBT community um was an interesting process because the very first person I dated 
was a so-called uh, pastor. He actually turned out to not really be a pastor, but he was gay. And so he became the, the avenue for me to explore the LGBT community. So it turned out that he was even more violent than my own father and stuff like that. But getting into that community, I really thought that I would find home. I would find a place of being loved and belonging and um, accept acceptance, and it was the complete opposite. Um, when I was young, um, everybody just wanted to have sex with me because you're fresh meat on the market. Um, and because I'd already been sexually abused, um, in my mind, sex and love and intimacy was one thing. So I became highly sexually promiscuous under the veil of thinking that I was sharing love, sharing love, sharing love, only later to discover that um, these people were just as abusive. They, uh, I was just a sex toy to them. Um, and I found that within the community, the level of judgment and hate and shaming and criticism and hatred was so massive. I can remember years upon years upon years um, sort of being on the dance floor in nightclubs with dark glasses on because I didn't want anybody to see that I was crying because even though I was in a crowd of people who were supposedly like me, I've, I never fitted in. I never fitted in and the tears would just be pouring out of my eyes because somehow I wanted to fit somewhere. Somehow I knew something in me was saying that this was wrong and at the same time trying to make sense of this God that I've always believed in. Um, and so, yeah, my LGBTQ experience was terrible. Absolutely, absolutely, absolutely terrible. It was violent, tons of theft, um, tons of judgment. But I'm glad that it happened because after about five, 25, eight years, it got me to ask the question, it's not normal for me to want to keep getting to a, a point where I try commit suicide. I try committing, uh, committing suicide five times. And so I started to look for therapy to try and help me make sense of the fact that it's, it's not right for somebody to want to keep wanting to end their life. Sure, man. Um, um, it's, what I want to know quickly is how do you affect you when you made the choice to leave that part of life and the regarding the LGBT community man, surely you must have been rejected by them and there must have been some sort of backlash from, from their side absolutely it still happens to this day but it's an amazing story um, so in rehab at the age of 30 um, this organization called the Christian Motorcycle Association, they came and did an outreach to the rehab and they had this little flyer with them and it was the story of this guy on a motorbike who kept looking in his rearview mirror and drove over a cliff and died. And at the time, I am related to that story because I was also dealing drugs to um, pay for my habits. And I recognized the fact that I was always looking in my rearview mirror, you know, checking out for police and stuff like that. And so I remember going up to this very scary biker dude with long hair and tattoos everywhere and asking him, would Jesus accept somebody like me? 
and he said, well, Jesus accepts anybody. And uh, I prayed the salvation prayer. And that night or the next night, but within the first week, I had this amazing spiritual experience where I found myself awake, um, sitting up in my bed, having a conversation with something that was in the room, but nothing was in the room. And I believe it was God. And God saying to me, um, you need to read Revelations 1. And what was interesting is, is that I hadn't touched the Bible in years. I didn't even know that Romans was a book in the Bible, but somehow I knew. And I didn't have a Bible, so I had to go to the nursing station and ask if I could borrow a Bible. And the Bible that was there, the cover was missing, half the books were missing out of it, but it had Romans 1. And Romans 1 is the famous chapter um, of um, dysfunctional human behavior, and it also talks about um, um, a homosexual sin. But God didn't use those verses to point out um, that I was living the wrong way. It was Romans 1 verse 32 that hit me like a ton of bricks because it says that worst of all, the people who behave this way coerce and condone others to do the same. And mm -hmm. it was like there was a movie reel of my life that flashed before my eyes. And I saw every single time that I was at a bar and I'm forcing people to have another shooter with me, coercing people to take drugs with me, sending the nudie pics, trying to seduce people sexually. And I realized that I was guilty of the sin of coercion. And mm -hmm. in that moment, I realized that God was saying to me that I wasn't living the way I should. I, sh I started going to a, a church in Kempton Park called Maranatha shortly after that. And the one day, walking out of church, there was this little piece of paper, card, lying on the floor. And I was still at that point in my Christianity where I thought that we were saved by works. And so picked up the card, hoping that God would tick the box of one more good thing that I've done and that hopefully he would allow me to get into heaven. And picked up the card and I was about to put it back on the counter. And I just heard God say to me, turn the card over. And I turned the card over and it was a counselor who specifically deals with people who come from LGBTQ sexual brokenness. And so that was the start of my journey of walking with God, fighting all the way. Don't get me wrong. I have fought God every single step of the way for him to get me to a point of being able to lay down sex and sexual identity and choose a life of celibacy to follow him. Yeah, that is so interesting. Um, I want to quickly, just because we, we've got to move on with our time, um, we, we chatted a little bit before we started with the interview. We chatted about the a little bit more of a, if I can call it like a scientific point yes. of view on, you know, based on having a, a, a gay life and, and things like that. And that is for me, that is very interesting because we always only hang on to the, the Bible and the Christian perspective, and we should, of course. But there's a lot more to it than that. And people need to understand this. The church needs to understand this. Pastors need to learn this. And Absolutely. just general people need to know this. Can you just touch on that for us? Okay. So um, God had gotten me to a point of being celibate for about two years. Um, and in August 2019, um, a organization called 23andMe released 
their 15-year genetics study done with Biobank. And the 15-year genetics, is, well, let me backtrack a little bit. In 1993 and 94, a, a Austrian, German, Scandinavian, Germanic um, geneticist did a test on twin brothers. One was LGBTQ, one was um, heterosexual, and he claimed to have found the gay gene. And that test was never verified or duplicated, but it did launch this 15-year genetic study by 23andMe and Biobank, where they tested the DNA of heterosexual men, heterosexual women, um, lesbian women, gay men, a whole group of people. And after 15 years, in August 2019, the results of that genetic study was released. And so what they um, discovered genetically is that there is no single gay gene um, there are four epimarkers that could, and it's very important for people to understand when you read the study, is that it uses language like could possibly, points to, maybe, might explain. There's no definites. Um, that four epimarkers that could relate to same-sex attraction. But those epimarkers also relate to other things. So there's no more plausible reason to say that those epimarkers relate to same-sex attraction exclusively as they could be something else. So the four epimarkers are, the one relates to smell, they believe it's got something to do with pheromones, the other one relates to um, a balding, um, increased testosterone, um, the other one relates to um, bipolar manic depressive disorder, and the other one relates to hyper um, risky sexual sexual predatorial um, disorder. But of those epimarkers, they fall into a category called polygenetic or polygenic um, um, genes, which means that they can't be passed down from parent to child. Um, and the other thing is, is that they need multiple factors, both genetically and of those epimarkers, to work in conjunction simultaneously to potentially manifest as same-sex attraction. Um, but of those epimarkers, less than 1% of each of those little DNA uh, markers um, could relate to same-sex attraction. The conclusion of this 15-year genetic study is that um, genetics cannot explain same-sex um, same attraction and that the ultimate conclusion is, is that LGBTQ sexual identity is learnt behavior, socialized behavior. Now, what's interesting is if you go and look at how does one possibly become socialized into believing you're same-sex attracted, um, a whole lot of psychological factors come into play. So uh, one of them is called imprinting theory. Um, we all imprint on each, on, on each other, but with children from 0 to 13, it's known as the golden years where a child's brain is like a sponge. They absorb all the data that happens to them. So the way parents treat their children, the, the labels that you put onto your children. So, for example, like in my case, you know, and people would say, oh, you know, he's a very sensitive child. He's very creative. Be gentle with him. So already I was being imprinted that there was something different. I was softer, all of this kind of thing, which already started the journey towards building this narrative in my head that led me towards an LGBTQ um, history. So that's one, it's called imprinting. The other one, which is a massive one, in the Gay and Lesbian Studies Journal, 
um, the st global statistics show that um, up to 93% of all same-sex attracted people um, um, were either sexually abused in early childhood or exposed to inappropriate sexual material. Now, that leads to something psychologically called imprinted arousal pattern, where the brain um, uses that data, that trauma from the sexual experiences to recreate um, sexual experiences into your adulthood, which means this, is that up to 93% of all people who believe that they're same-sex attracted are actually reliving sexual trauma as a form of identity that they actually need to go for healing for. Um, yeah. There's other things like labeling theory. We all know what labeling theory is. It's like if you say to somebody, you're stupid, you're stupid, you're stupid, you're stupid, eventually that person starts to manifest as stupid. Um, and it works in the same with, with, um, with the way we raise our children. Um, you're gay, you're, you know, you're lesbian, you're this, you're that. And so we start to put that data into children's minds. Yes, you know, it makes me think about the, what the Bible says about the power of the tongue, eh? Because if you, what you say and what you speak into, into people's life, you're literally speaking it into existence. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so I'm busy working on a second book, which is called, uh, which is a self-evaluation manual. Because one of the, the problems when you're dealing with people, any person, whether they're same-sex attracted, LGBTQ, um, or any person, if people are confronted with sets of information that's foreign to the information that they have in their mind, they go into cognitive dissonance where they they push against it and they become defensive, and then we all do it. Um, yeah. And so this book that I'm busy writing is a self-evaluation manual that pastors will be able to use, counselors, Hopefully, the LGBTQ people will be able to work through it personally without feeling like they're being violated by somebody else. Um, and what's amazing about the book is that for the last year, I've been posing questions to a, a global network of people like myself who lived an LGBTQ life or that have walked away from it, um, that are Christian and are trying to reach other LGBTQ people. So I've been posing questions to them about the different concepts in the book, and I've included their testimonies in the book. Um, there's questions, there's biblical references to explain how the Bible explains certain things like imprinting, labeling theory, all of that. Um, and so I really hope that it will be a great tool for people who don't interact with LGBTQ people to have a way to be able to speak to them and love them through truth, yeah. but through knowledge as well. Yeah, yeah. Next, uh, the book is called Bedroom Called Rainbow. Correct. All right, I want the listeners to be make sure that they have this name, Bedroom Called Rainbow. You just, you have to get this book. Um, it, for me, it's, it's, it's a story of your life, but it is an educational story of your life. Something that so many people know. In fact, all people can learn from. Um, yeah. whether you're LGBTQ, whether you are not, whether you are heterosexual, whether you're gay, it doesn't matter who you are. There is something in it for everyone to learn. 
And um, so listeners, please, 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 please make sure that you get this book, Bedroom Called Rainbow, and that you read this because that second one is on its way and you would want this one already read before that one comes out. Um, maybe I can just tell the people, where can they get this book? Um, so if you're in South Africa, the book is available um, online at exclusive books. Um, you can either get the um, digital version or you can get your hard copy courier to you. Um, it's available on Barnes & Noble, on Google Books, on Amazon. So all the book um, online um, uh, apps, you'll be able to find them there. So it's Bedroom Called Rainbow by Ariane Bezadenote. Um, I just want to say this to people. The, what I've tried to do in the book is I've tried to include funny stories to break some of the very heavy trauma stories. And I've done that with each chapter so that it isn't this very heavy thing all the time. Um, and I hope that you enjoy it. It's a, a deeply honest story of a sinner's struggle towards Jesus. Wow. And Jesus, just like our ministry's name is Jesus to my rescue. And yes. certainly Jesus came to your rescue. Another incredible story of how Jesus saves. Amen. All right, listeners. So again, just there, please write down this name, a bedroom called Rainbow. And if you did miss it, or if you maybe want us to give you the names of the, the places where you can purchase this book, please contact us on plus two seven zero double six four six eight three six three five and we will gladly send you the information or the links to where you can purchase this book. Arian, thank you so much. Thank you so much for joining us and thank you for sharing this um, with our listeners today. And I, and I know that people will buy this book. I'm going to do it. Um, it is absolutely um, I'm yeah I'm I'm amazed by your story and I want to know more. So, um, and it can also help me where I work with people, you Absolutely. know, in counseling and all of that. So it's, 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 it's incredible. Listen, this, I want to just end off by saying that, um, we've done a few interviews with people of, uh, we have challenges of various kinds, like, you know, maybe we had, um, people that were on you that were in drug abuse and, they were in it for many, many years. We had people in here with, um, and in the studio who, who struggled with, um, uh, drug, alcohol abuse and other stuff. And we had people in here who were with, uh, were gay and they gave us their stories and their version of the stories and explanations. Um, and today we had Aaron here who, who did the same, but he just added something different. He added a scientific, more scientific part to it which um, I've never heard, and it was absolutely incredible to learn that. And um, I want to tell the church today, I want to tell pastors that is listening today, unfortunately, there are still people out there that judge people because of the decisions they've made in life. Absolutely. We cannot judge people because of that. There is no difference between the person who, for whatever reason it may be, made a decision in his life to be gay versus mm. the one who decided to use drugs versus the one who decided to steal a car. Um, there are no difference. And it doesn't matter what sin it is. People don't yes. hate the sinner, hate the sin. And hell 
a sinner to salvation? Absolutely. The answer is in that. Love everyone the same way because at the end, all of us are sinners. Every single one of us make mistakes. There is not even a pastor or anybody, a minister, whatever you want to call them. There's nobody out there that do not make mistakes. Absolutely. No, there's no, there's no person on earth that doesn't struggle with sin to whatever degree. Yeah. No, that's very, that's very true that you say that. I mean, you're, you're, thank you so much, Arian. Thank you for joining us. God bless you. I'm going to just quickly do a quick prayer for you. Thank you, sir. Lord, thank you so much for this opportunity to speak to Arian today. Lord, this is such a blessing to have someone that, that are willing to come out and speak out, that are willing to share his life story with others. Lord, you came and you rescued him. And we know that when you do that, you do that so that his life story can then again change other people's lives. And I pray today, Lord, that, that you will bless him, that you will bless him in every area of his life, yes. through this book, through whatever he might um, still go into going, maybe this, this book will become a movie. I don't know. Lord, you mm-hmm. know. But I want you to bless him and that you will guide him to where he needs to be, that you will guide him where he needs to go and the steps that he needs to take from you. And I ask, Lord, that you will provide protection over him. Yes. And I pray to God, I decree and declare no weapons formed against Aaron shall prosper in the mighty name of Jesus. I mm-hmm. thank you, Lord. Hallelujah. Amen. Thank you for listening to this JTMR podcast brought to you by Jesus to My Rescue Ministries and Outreach. Visit our website at www.jesustomyrescue.com for more great content that will help you grow in your relationship with our Lord Jesus Christ. If you need prayer, send us a WhatsApp to plus two seven double six four six eight three six three five. Alternatively, send us an email to support at jesustomyrescue.com. You can also find us on most social media accounts such as Facebook, Twitter, TikTok and many others. Just search for Jesus to my rescue. God bless you. Bye-bye.